Welcome to the bullpen session. Glad you're here. Glad you're listening. This is Patrick Lillis. Um, yeah, thrilled. This is the second interview I did while at the Southeast Theater Conference. And, you know, I met uh, the conversation is with Dr. Indira Edwaru, and they are the director of the Steve Jobs Theater at Apple, which, you know, sounds impressive in itself, but also, you know, was they were the executive artistic director, I think I have the title right, but the, the Billy Holiday Theater in Brooklyn, which is an amazing theater, and they did a resurgence of what really brought that theater back to life and did some of the more exciting theater I've seen in my borough, which I loved. They're also the founding artistic director, executive director of the Green Space with WNYC, and just around just changing the culture of uh, art which is <laughs> i find amazing uh you know i don't think i don't think there's an awareness that i knew their name but uh certainly was aware of the green space aware of what it was doing for the wnyc aware of we talk about the uh august wilson century cycle that they produced uh all 10 plays there and and many other things and billy holiday you'll hear they just uh that the theater great productions that were there and and the vision and elevation of the work. And it was a great conversation to have to think, you know, of just really investment in, I love, you'll hear in the conversation just the joy and the idea of needing to tell the story and being in love with telling the story and that that joy is what makes the change possible. And uh, grateful for the conversation. Also grateful just to be at the Southeast Theater Conference. Again, I've shared this before, but it's the, conference that's the best with partnering education and early career artists to professional theaters and students with universities and training programs, but it really is investing in giving people the knowledge of getting to the next step, and they have keynotes, and uh, Indira was one of the speakers and told their story, but along with their story came a history of change that I really appreciated, and and other keynote speakers of designers sharing their ex- practical experience while also inspiring uh, everyone here, and and it's great. It's also great to just walk around and see people. I mean, we got to have great conversations with Furman, who will be doing Jake Brash's Our Tempest, and got to see Center College. Obviously, Matthew Halleck, who helped me with the sound, which I really appreciate because I'm recording on my own, and uh, made it much better. But uh, and talking to Clemson and and just schools that we've been in touch with, and Austin P and uh, and Hillsbury Community College, which uh, had four students here, and it was great just to, who did Judas play, and it's just great to see everybody and to hear what they're excited about at the conference, and uh, Tony, the new executive director, you know, leading the keynotes the last two nights with, you know, passion, and, and going to talk to her I think later for the pod which is great because uh hear what you know what she envisions is next as she starts this her first year but like and I'm interested in what's next seems to be a lot of the conversation is about how do we create the theater we want to create at this time and what that change looks like and what that nimbleness of change looks like and um and I'm lucky to have had a conversation with Indira and uh and I am looking forward to sharing that with you. So with that, play ball. 
Jobs Theater sits at the highest point of Apple Park. Um, it is a theater that is rooted in storytelling. We tell the stories of the best products in the world, um, Apple's products. We also um, present events that are rooted in Apple's values, um, values of accessibility, values of the environment and environmentalism, uh, values of diversity and inclusion, um, and we work with all parts of the organization. They're mainly for Apple employees. We do have 165,000 Apple employees across the globe. Um, and COVID ushered in an opportunity to not only tell those stories um, with Apple employees, but also um, in the theater, um, which seats 1,000 people. But it also allows us to put those stories online and share those with employees from across the world. That's great. And when it comes to programming, also, I just wanted to say, do you do outside stuff? Like, there was a partnership with Billie Holiday. I saw that the, the presentation of 12 Angry Men and Women. Is that something that is unusual? Is that normal? Uh, it's it was it was unusual, but I think we can all agree that with the converging pandemics of COVID-19 and the ongoing um, racial injustices that the murder of George Floyd illuminated that um, to be able to bring together artists and an incredible theater like the Billie Holiday Theater to shine a light on those stories in a very intimate and authentic way um, we were very honored to partner with the Billie Holiday and Theater. Were you I was going to ask if you were engaged in producing and I just want to say I thought it was my it was incredibly impactful, but it was also one of the better produced streaming theater things I'd seen, just with the music and the filming of the street in the back and all the performers were incredible. Was, yeah, I did. That was my last project in New York. Um, it actually was my last project as the executive artistic director of the Billie Holiday Theater. Um, and I did direct that piece. I did conceptualize and direct it. Um, and I stood in the rain um, with the entire crew because we had quite a downpour um, in September of 2020. Um, and it was the first equity-approved theatrical um, event in the nation, actually. We're very, very proud that we were a critic's pick in the New York Times, but even more so proud of those things because it means that people were digesting the moment of George Floyd and understanding that that was not a solitary moment, that there was a book published by the New Press, also one of our partners, um, that uh, racial profiling, the killing of black men and women and children has been an ongoing uh, pandemic in this country since 1619 when the first souls stepped onto American soil. Yeah, and well, the piece was, all oh, that's incredible. And the piece was beautiful and the scale of it, since you were standing in the rain, I will ask, like it was filmed like a live, I want to say TV event, but it was like a live event, like a Super Bowl event. You know, there were so many cameras from different angles yeah. c covering it. That yeah, it we did a, we did five robotics, um, a camera on every single actor, and then we used a jib to frame out the environment, a jib to make sure we captured 
the police car coming down and interrupting this amazing music by members of the New York Philharmonic and then that music, that siren sound being taken over by Daniel Bernard Romain, the incredible violinist. So passing the sound of the sirens to the violin and then allowing the actors to morph. The actors became multiple characters in those boxes. And those boxes, when I was thinking about how do I create something and ensure that no actor walks out of here with COVID. Um, how do I protect these incredible artists who are so brave and so courageous and so willing to speak truth to power? And so the boxes came out of that. And then partnering with Devin Cameron, the lighting projection designer, and Hollis King, um, the projection artist, to say, let's make these boxes more than just that. And they became art in themselves. And then at the very end, um, the last moment I gave to the, the to the actors was, let's make those boxes about what it means to be African American on African soil and the sense of never being able to really stretch one's wings fully and never really being able to live in the world in the same way as others might and, and others might take that for granted and the box that we all live in because of racial constraints in this moment. But those constraints exist from a gender point of view. They, they exist um, in terms of sexual orientation. They exist in religion and faith. Um, so many ways that we compartmentalize and put communities of people in boxes. In this instance, we were speaking to the racial injustices happening in America. Yeah, and it was, that was clear and successful and, and just amazing. Because at first, watching it, I'm like, oh, well, that's COVID. And everything you just said is was my experience watching it. It's like it's effective and thematic and tied together. And I want to ask a simple question: Where did, when did you start to think about my research? You know, looking up a little bit in the bio, if you dance, er, and musician. When did you start to think about creating and producing? work at a much larger scale or at such a large scale? I'm not sure that I ever think about producing something at a large scale. Um, I grew up in a neighborhood uh, of black working class people um, and I just remember that storytelling was always a part of the environment. We were always as children sitting, listening, hoping, hoping to not be shooed away and hoping to be able to stay up and stay outside past the streetlights coming on and either my parents sitting on the porch to tell stories or other neighbors, older neighbors telling stories. Um, and so storytelling was just a part of the environment for us. And I... I am fundamentally a storyteller, whether I am playing a Mozart concerto, because I do have my bachelor's in classical flute, um, Mozart is telling a story. Whether I am dancing and thinking about a Tchaikovsky or about a Catherine Dunham, there's ultimate storytelling in it. Or, you know, I've, I studied with Carrie Amu Welsh, who's not with us any longer, but she was an artist who codified an entire form of dance 
based on Pan-Africanism, and she lived in Africa several years of her life and pulled from multiple um, tribes and countries and traditions and created this incredible Mfundala technique. And then I studied with Ernie McClintock, um, an out gay male in the 1960s and 70s, out gay black male who understood that we as black people needed to tell our stories from a place of cultural specificity and so created this jazz actors technique and then studied with Sonia Sanchez, the great poet. And so my journey, I, I feel so privileged in my journey that somehow I ended up in rooms with people who their ideas, their genius could not be contained. And so they wouldn't allow those of us who were coming behind them to see walls, to see rails. So when I enter space, I often, um, as someone who is also a, a builder of institutions, I often will say, we're not adding any water to the sand. We're not making cement. We need to keep it pliable so that we can build whatever the world demands of us. And the world is constantly evolving and changing and growing and expanding and evolving and devolving and all of those things. And so we as artists and artistic institutions have to be able to be agile and flexible in order to be in service to the world that we are in service to and to create spaces for artists. Um, so it's less about big ideas and it's more about honoring the story um, whatever that story is, and standing on the shoulders of extraordinary giants. So if I can see far into the future, it's because I've sat with people like Stephen McKinley Henderson, and we've had incredible conversations, and Ruben Santiago Hudson and Kenny Leon, and, and not just one-offs. We have close friendships and working relationships, and Felicia Rashad and Michelle Shea, and these incredible human beings who... It's hard for me now as a director to go into a rehearsal room and I'm creating, but I feel their influence. I feel them with me. I feel that we, you know, I always think about the quote by Huey P. Newton, the people are behind me and the people are my strength. And so it's less about the big ideas and more about what is the story that needs to be told urgently and how can I bring all of my resources whether it's personal or that I can gather to the story and the gathering of the resources is the amazing part of it because I mean it, when you ask when you talk about being a builder of institutions that comes I mean, there's a definite skill, right? You mentioned all these artists and thinking about storytelling, and there's a difference. I think I'm struck by it because there's a difference of sitting on the stoop in the neighborhood and telling the story versus raising $10 million for black arts institutions and um, leading that scale of to getting the century stories told and... Uh, the green space and building up the Billy Holiday. How do you 
engage other people to say, hey, or other organizations or foundations or people of resources to say, come with me. This story is important. Patrick, when I was a little girl, I used to, in our backyard, I used to get all my brothers and sisters and the neighborhood kids together. And we would create these events. And we would charge a nickel. And we had makeshift chairs for the audience, which were the neighborhood kids who were also the talent. And I remember I wanted to direct and gather the money and do all of the parts, right? <laughs> and, and decide what people were going to say, do all of the parts. But it really comes from just, an ex I just love it. I just love gathering people into a room. And there's a bit of a mischievous side to me. So I just kind of love, um, you know, doing what we're not, you know, not, not, not supposed to do, but I love doing what's sort of outside of the box. So for me, it's just the fun of it. I don't know how else to say it. I just love it so much and it's fun and it brings me so much joy. And so whether, you know, when we did the August Wilson American Century Cycle and we had 77 actors from across the world come to the green space and we had 10 incredible um, pieces by the, you know, unprecedented Pulitzer Prize winning August Wilson and that project and partnership with Constanza Romera and the August Wilson estate and the impeccable artistic director Ruben and... Um, associate uh, Stephen, and it, it was fun. It felt like I was in my backyard in the summer, and we all had our shoes off, and we were all running around trying to put this show on that, we'd, that we were all a part of, and it was so much fun. And yes, it was hard, and yes, I had to get the resources together, and yes, I had to reach, I had this idea I was literally with my mother who passed shortly after seeing the green space for the first time. And she was saying to me, what, you know, what are you imagining in here? And I said, mommy, this has to have the best of the best in it. That's Zora Neale Hurston and that's August Wilson and that's, you know, Lorraine Hansberry. Those, the best of the best that we have to represent the exquisite diversity of New York City and the world that we live in. We have to remix our sound. We have to kind of think of ourselves in the soundscape of New York as a remix and what does that feel like and bring some of the voices that have been background voices into the fore and um, you know reached out to the August Wilson estate to say could I have permission to record these after she gave me permission I knew I needed a partner in this someone who could helm it and so had conversations with multiple people and the person who finally emerged as the one was Ruben. And so really it was just young, you know, young at heart people <laughs> who love this work so much. And that's really what it feels like. I know it's hard and I do get tired at times. Um, and I, I do know that there's a political landscape that I'm navigating. I do know what it means to be a black woman in circles that are often very male-centric or very white-centric, and sometimes I'm the only one. I know what that feels like. Um, but at the end of the day, I just count it all joy. Yeah. It's, uh, it's funny. I think if I th when you think about all the projects as fun, which they are, we're doing any 
or important, not just fun, you know, like I think about that, people loving the project is what brings the fun to it, but also recognizing that the August Wilson Century cycle has to be there. It has, it, it's one of those things that you feel like, well, it had to exist because it, it has to, you know, and when that spirit comes, I feel like the work becomes easier but I don't want to say it's not any less intimidating to think of scale. Um, and I'm interested in another question, just when you said nimble, I know you talk about the leadership of organizations in the 21st century, and a lot of organizations are not nimble. And I think it's to the detriment of the art, and I think it's in the detriment of the conversation that we should be having with the art. How, how do you, put that nimbleness into an institution? How do you make sure it's part of the culture and the value of its operation? Yeah, I, I think that it's, for me, when I look out at, and now I've had the opportunity to look at 154 theaters and kind of see behind the scenes, and then award uh, seed money to 100 black theaters, and then award more substantial um, gifts to 50 black theaters, and then having worked at BAM, the Brooklyn Academy of Music, a presenting arts organization, launching and conceptualizing the green space in a media company, and then launching NPR Presents as a global platform in a media company, going into a predominantly black-led institution that was an off-Broadway theater, a nonprofit model, and now being in a very for-profit corporate model. Um, what I have learned is that a lot of resources are put into bricks and mortar at the detriment of the artist and the communities. Um, we started as a civilization in spaces that were outdoors, in amphitheaters, you know, in, in, in Europe, in and in Africa and open wide spaces where drumming and dancing and, and spoken word and, and theater, if you will, were all taking place. And so the focus was on the art. It was on the artist. It was on what it means to have creative expression as a part of a civilization, which is a you know, fundamental democratic ideal. And now we build buildings so people can put their names on them. And there was a time when the arts outlasted the buildings or the, the, um, the structure in which it happened. And now I think the buildings are going to outlast the artist. They're going to outlast the voice. They're going to outlast what needs to be said. They're going to outlast that mirror that Shakespeare talks about that we hold up and see ourselves. And I think that we are in dire need as a civilization to see ourselves, truly see ourselves and look and ask ourselves, is that truly who we want to be and to become? And I think that if, you know, I've been having conversations with black theaters, I've traveled to LA and Detroit and other parts and had very intense conversations with leaders about where they're putting their dollars. And saying to them, you know, you have this space, and it's beautiful, and I have nothing against beautiful spaces. Right. But if you had to choose, which often 
underrepresented theaters and communities have to do, they have to choose. Put it in the artist. Make a bet on the artist. Make a bet on the community. Um, don't build something and then figure out how to get artists there at shoestring budgets. Make a bet on the community. Make a bet on artists. And it is unfortunate that black-led institutions, Asian-led, Native American-led, Latinx-led, um, institutions that are focused on people with disabilities, institutions that are focused on the LGBTQ plus communities, any institution really focused on a social justice that they are underfunded and the support is not there um, in the same way as predominantly white-led institutions. And when, it, when you're saying bet on the artist, are you thinking about like invest in, a, in an artist slash and a project? You know, because it doesn't have to be play number two of our season. It's, I, I see value in you and the program. Well, well, look, you know, we're talking about, we've talked about two pieces so far. The August Wilson American Century Cycle, Patrick, 10 plays. The... 12 Angry Men and Women, The Weight of the Weight. And neither of them required a beautiful multi, 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 multi million dollar space. You know, the, the, the recordings could have taken place in a warehouse or, or a soundstage and been just as effective, right? The green space was built um, the first in the country to be able to see an audience from the street, have the broadcast integrity, because it is a broadcast studio that audiences could be invited into, but it also was streaming live video out to audiences before, you know, back in 2007. I mean, the concept I was playing with is, I, I think those huge theaters are, are antiquated. I do. I think that our audience is going to be demanding more and more. And I was, you know, I was having these thoughts back in 2006 when they brought me on board to imagine the green space. Is it about filling a seat of a thousand people or is it about a hundred or two hundred people having that very visceral connected experience and then we're reaching millions? I like to think that it's both, right? Right. Um, and so we were experimenting with that at the green space, and I, you know, I got to step in and conceptualize that and serve as its founding executive producer and try things out. Um, and and now I'm seeing it happen now. How many years is that? You know, 15, 16, 16 years later, and I'm fascinated. Um, because we're still not, we're still there, and it still seems hard. And um, but none, all of that to say, at the end of the day, for me, um, regardless of whether one uses one platform or multiple ones, um, as long as we maintain the integrity of the story, that's always been for me the the most important thing. And anyone who's worked with me knows that um, the non-negotiable is excellence. Non-negotiable is? Excellence. Excellence. The non-negotiable is excellence. Yeah. I agree about the 200 versus, it's both, great, it'd be great if the houses fall and everybody, as many people as can have it, but what's important is that the conversation is effective and impactful for the people yeah. who are having it. 
and having it means the presenter and the listener and the receiver. And, and I'm going to ask you to talk just because I think it's in, you, you say it a lot and I want to get it right, but the stories that matter and topics of our times. And it's interesting because there's an ant in there and both times I read it, I was like, so, I mean, it's one, it's not or the other, it's both. And what does that mean to you and how are the topics that matter, you know, it's funny, it's a, you know, if you're, when you're somewhere like Apple, there's this global awareness. And I think you said the same thing with NPR, right? It became more of a, not New York centric, but global. Uh, how do you have an awareness for that conversation? And how do you measure, this is a weird question for me, I'm not sure I was planning on it, but how do you feel the impact of the, how do you see if it's impactful in the change it's happening with the 200 people or whoever is the audience? Yeah, I'm, I'm constantly paying attention to the audience. Um, I'm not one to curate or produce or direct and good luck and whoever sits there, it's irrelevant. It's actually quite relevant because the audience is a part of my show. You know, they're the kids in the neighborhood. They're part of the show, but they are part of the show. The energy they're bringing, the understanding they're bringing of the story, is super important. Um, you know, at the green space when we started, and I can't remember the exact numbers, but I do know that at that WNYC, um, its audience was so predominantly white. I mean, I think it was in the 80s and close to 90%. And what I thought might be really interesting as someone who loved public radio and grew up listening to it with my parents, so what, what happens when we are open to the street, meaning you can walk by on, on, on Varick Street in lower Manhattan, in Soho, and you can literally see the talent inside, and you can see who's leading the conversation. So it was, we couldn't just put diverse people in the place of being in the conversation. We also had to put people of diverse backgrounds in leading the conversations, and then we also had to focus on the audience. And by the time I left, um, the audience, like New York City, which is 50, a little over 50% people of color, that's what the audience represented. And that felt really special and really yeah, great. Yeah, that's, that's amazing it success. It was really incredible. And they, they, geared, they were younger. You know, still, still all those things of you know, highly curious and um, culturally you know, um, rich and complex. And it was, it was a beautiful audience. It was just a beautiful audience. And so I, I do think of the theatrical experience as three part. It's, you know, who's behind the scenes leading, who's on stage, and who's in the audience. You know, that's, that, is, that is singing in a three part harmony that the American theater is still learning, how to sing in that three part harmony. And it is an absolute must um, going into the 21st century. I love that our young people are demanding that of us. I love that 
Um, things like we see you white American theater emerged. I think that's super important. I think it's important that um, uh, you know institutions like Black Theater United taking Broadway artists and they said we we don't just want to perform on the stage. We also want to um, you know lift a light and shine our light, use our space in the world and shine a light on some of the injustices and inequalities that are happening. And um, so lots of really, I think, impactful things are happening in the world. I agree. I'm wondering if uh, when something you said about the American theater slowly, and what are the what do you think the barriers are for that, the changes that are happening? Um, only because, it's funny, I was reading an article of yours, that an interview in 2015, where you were, I feel like, talking about the conversation that then emerged from White American We See You. Uh, and obviously, long before I had a clear awareness that this is an issue. Um, and I think the topics and the themes are being presented. It's very funny. I'm asking you a question. I'm about to give my opinion. But oh, I, I, I'm, I'd love to. But I also anything. don't see the one thing you listed was the leadership. You know, you don't see the people, not just leadership, but the people inside the building who are doing the presenting. The presenters may have changed. And maybe we're getting a more inclusive audience but it does not feel like the inside of the organization is transforming. And I think if you're gonna talk in that three-part harmony, that's, I think that's the part we need. Yeah, um, I think that's right, Patrick. And, you know, I, I think we're still not all on the same page about what we want. And Audre Lorde, the social critic, lesbian social critic, made a profound statement that I read in my, you know, late teens, early 20s, where she says that we, that, the, that we have to be about creating a world in which all people can flourish. And I don't know that everyone quite agrees with that. We fundamentally will say, oh, yes, everyone agrees with that. But it's like when you go into an organization. I saw this meme once, and it made me laugh so much because this leader walks in front of this huge group of people, and he says, who all wants change? And all the hands go up. And then he says, who all wants to change? Complete silence, right? No hand went up. And that's therein lies, I think, the conundrum, that we all want a world in which all people can flourish, perhaps, but it means that we have to do things differently. It means we need different board members in our institutions. It means we need different leadership. It means we need different middle management. It needs we need, we need to be thinking about... Um, who our funders and donors and subscribers are. We need to be thinking about how we are thinking about our audience. We need to be thinking about what press and media 
are we reaching out to and giving opportunities to? Um, all of those things. If I get a high profile artist, I often will give that high profile interview to a community media outlet who would never have an opportunity to have and to have that profile and it puts eyeballs on that very hyperlocal media platform. Um, and so it has to be in the DNA of the organization that all the hands just don't go up for wanting change, but all the hands go up for being willing to change and adjust and be agile. And perhaps that means I'm, I'm at a stage of middle age, right? I'm, I'm middle age. And I see these young leaders coming behind me and they're thinking thoughts I never thought. And I have to make space for them. <clears throat> Intentionally, I have to make space for them and I have to give them attention and I have to use whatever platform I have to lift them up and illuminate them. And sometimes that does mean stepping out of the way and saying, you know, I got the Billy to this place and now it's time. I could stay in Brooklyn, which is my favorite place on the planet. It's the best. It's the best place <laughs> on the planet. And I could be there forever or I could go and challenge myself in another uh, arena and give the next leader pass the baton to that next leader now that I've gotten the Billy to this, this place. Child, the next leader's going to come and think thoughts I never thought and have ideas I'd never have. And so we all are responsible for changing and making space for the new. Um, and in that, um, I think we can get there, but I do think that there is a huge desire for change but we have to create the same enthusiasm to change. Yeah, that's so well said, because it is it is the truth. I see, I'm watching, you know, you're watching, I'm watching and going, worrying that if we, if, if they don't, if you don't change internally, the change will be temporary, because that's right. you're always gonna come back to that's right. who you are, and so you have, and it's the hardest thing to change, is who you are. You know, I can, you know, change my shirt, but I can't, you know, how do I change my instinct and my values and my behavior and and ways of doing things? Um, and it's also interesting, it's great to be at the Southeast Theater Conference with all the young people and hearing their questions yesterday at the talk back, I thought, all right, they're, they, they're engaged and they're thinking about things in a different way and just allowing yourself to have that awareness I am so selfishly taking this time for me to pick your brain about the donor question, because I do think that's something I've been thinking about, is to make the sustainable change. You have to find different sources of support, and how, how do you do that? But what I really mean is you people are going to support what they want to support, so do you go and find people who believe in what your, if you've already existed, what your institution wants to do, or do you as an institution do that internal change and say, you know what, we need to be doing this, will you do it with us? I may have answered my question, but. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I think, again, I, I'll go back to really 
having a deep belief in the ecosystem and that the philanthropic world, funders, donors, are one part of it. Um, the, I'll use again the Billy as an example. The Billy had to be brave even before others were willing to be brave along with us and take a bet on us, um, meaning um, to invest in the Billy. Um, from a philanthropic point of view. Um, I remember that at the green space, that we had to be brave even when we were stretching dollars. Um, the, you know, fortune favors the brave, and I believe that, and I believe that it's, it takes a lot of courage to step out and do, and I think that is what underrepresented communities and artists and leaders and underrepresented institutions bring to the table is an historic bravery, an historic willingness to produce with almost few to no resources, still willing to produce. Um, my mentor and teacher, Ernie McClintock, I've mentioned him before, um, I don't even know if he had budgets. I don't know, I, I just keep thinking. I know that we used my Jeep Cherokee as the company you know, vehicle for so long, <laughs> and we put sets in there and costumes in there, and I drove down to North Carolina for the Black National Theater Festival, and I don't remember if we got paid or not, but I don't remember caring. Um, because Ernie, when we talk about stories that matter and the topics of our time, he is a quintessential um, embodiment of that. Stories that matter, Sheryl West, before it hits home, the topics of our time, HIV and AIDS in the black community, which was being completely overlooked during the pandemic. So that's what Ernie was really great at, understanding that the stories that matter were married to the topics of our time, that he lifted up playwrights who were being brave and who were telling stories that may never appear on Broadway, and that's okay. They may never be picked up by Netflix, and that's okay. They have extraordinary merit and and rigor and excellence in their own right because they're speaking to a community that needs to see themselves reflected. Because when they see themselves reflected, it means to be seen is to be. I see you, therefore you exist, you are. If you were sitting there and everyone's walking around you, you might start waving your hands and screaming, hello, does anyone see me or hear me? Well, I, I know as a black little girl who grew up in southeast Washington, D.C., that was a feeling a lot of the time. Does anyone see me or hear me? And so when I see myself on stage, I know I exist. I know I am. I know that there must be others like me. And in that, I begin to imagine whole worlds. And that is the power of representation. That is the power of finding the stories that matter 
and marrying them to the topics of our time because we as communities are living through these things every single day. And so when institutions, artists, playwrights, choreographers, visual artists, composers find a way to express what's happening in the world in this moment and they are able to tell a story through that, whether it's a very specific story or, or one that resonates universally, um, I think that's when transformation happens. It is when transformation happens. I wanted to know, I think it's funny, I hear about the truck going down to North Carolina and thinking like that effort of not only doing the conversation, not only creating the work, but finding your audience and who has to hear it, who's, how do you get it to the little girl who needs to know in you know, DC that they're seen and that they're not alone. And how do you successfully, I wanna ask, how do you successfully do that? Like how did, what was the effort? Like in the green space, when, the, when 50 WNYC, I think it was when 50% of the listening changed, when that changed, is, is it, you know, it can't, it's funny, I'm like, it can't be if you build it, they will come. It's super strategic. So, for example, when the August Wilson, and I'll use that, or I'll use the Zora Neale Hurston American broadcast premiere of Their Eyes Were Watching God for the 75th anniversary, um, we did at the Green Space, we made a strategic marketing and press decision that we would make sure we were inviting in not just mainstream press, but that press from Harlem and press from Brooklyn and, and local press who were reaching the, the diverse communities that they were in the room as well. We also decided not to put the tickets on sale on air first because the on-air audience is very different from the right, green space audience. Up, they'll eat them all up and then they'll, there'll be nothing left for communities of color. So we literally worked with those the Amsterdam news um, in Harlem and you know the uh, Caribbean news and we worked with the local papers and they released the tickets first um, we worked with you know press and um, uh, you know cultural partners and cultural organizations in those communities they talked about the tickets first and then once we had about 50% of the tickets sold, we started announcing it on air. Right, and, I, and there's no risk there. Your audience, your listening audience is going to come. That's right. You know, you're not. That's right, and we did the exact same thing. We, we finessed it, we, you know, really massaged it. And, you know, I, I used to look out at the green space audience and I called it a sea of white hair and white folks, right? Um, it was all white folks in the audience, and it was silver hair. And I have my silver hair now, so I'm in I'm in the I'm in the club, right? So, but when I left the green, so that was in 2009 when we launched, and but when I left the green space in 2013, so I was at I was building it for two years and then running it. Um, it was not that audience. It was younger and old older and younger and, you know, Latinx and African-American and white. And it was just, it felt like I was sitting in a New York subway train. Yeah. And that felt fabulous. 
Wow. And I often sit in the back of the theater. I sit, I find my little spot, and I sit. I want to hear the audience. I want to see them. I watch them watch um, whatever's on stage. It's To me, they are very much a part of the experience. And so, yes, as I'm leading up to the production, I'm paying attention to that. But once that's... Once it's on the stage, I I watch the audience watch, and that's um, that gives me a lot of data. Um, are they falling asleep? Um, are they glued? Are they? Do they hang around afterwards? An audience who makes a mass exodus for the door right after an event, I'm always curious as to how impactful that event was. So. How long do they hang around? Do we have to push them out the door after an hour of, you know, um, the event? And so, yeah, I think I think it's just, I think it's, you know, I think, I think we have to fall in love with the theater in a different way, actually. I think theater is, in many ways, our love story to the planet. And I'll talk about this in the keynote I'm giving. And I think in a lot of ways we've committed to it. We've married it, right? So it's a business transaction. Those of us in the theater, we've married it. It's a business transaction. But sometimes we've let that, that marriage grow cold. And, and I think that I'm not talking about a marriage legal, legal commitment to the theater that we should have. I'm talking about falling in love with it so much that you pay attention to it. You notice when it needs attention in one area or another. You're, you're in it. You're, you're invested in it. You see it. You're evolving with it. There's something so beautiful about being able to do that. Um, my love affair with the arts and culture and the theater is it's still driven by extraordinary passion. I have never had to work a day in my life. I've had to get up and go into spaces where I get to do what I love. Um, and yes, I get fatigued like anyone else. Um, but it is, I am in love with what I do. I am in love with the American theater. And because of that, as James Baldwin says of America, I have the right to criticize it. And I think the American theater in some ways has lost its way and does need to return to an extraordinary love affair for the story and the artist and the fundamental core of what we're doing. Forget about the buildings. Forget about the donors. Forget about all of that. If we can return to that, I think the donors will come. I think the... The, all the other things will come. I, I know they'll come because they, they have proven that they believe in it. And they believed in it when it was new. And they believed in it anytime when it evolves and changes. I love hearing, because I have no doubt that I love the art, you know, and that I love the work. And it is, it really resonated what you said because I think that also that idea of love, of paying attention to your partner and what do they need, mm -hmm. you know, and how do I, 
because I think at this, not at this moment, I think at every moment, theater needs something new because you can't right. do what you did before. Your partner's always evolving. Well, theater's always evolving, right? Yeah. And so to say, oh, we're loving theater the way we loved it back in the 1950s or the 1960s or the 1970s or 80s or 90s and now into the 21st century, it's not adequate anymore. And <laughs> it's not, I don't see the theater. Right, you know? <laughs> and, and, and artists are, are letting us know in no uncertain terms, and audiences are letting us know. They are not returning in the way we thought they might. Well, audiences are telling us something very clearly, and so let's listen. Let's really, really listen. And I think, it, yeah, let's listen and, and, uh, and try I don't want to say try to give them what they want, right? But try to figure out what it is, because I know there's a different calling in me of what I need to communicate today than I did in 2019. Uh, in a different form. Mm -hmm. Not different than theater, but different. And, um, but I think they will, there's this, you know, I'm, there becomes this excuse of like people aren't coming back because of the pandemic, and it's like, well, it's not true. I went to a Yankee game; it's sold out. It's sold out, right? You know, you know, Wynton Marsalis said something, and it was in two thousand and eight, two thousand nine, when I was launching the Green Space. Wynton said, "You have to take audiences where they don't even know they want to go yet." That's been a marker, a cornerstone for me. Um, and it comes back to, Patrick, this idea of being brave. And yes, we might lose audiences that we've had for a very long time, but we won't lose ourselves as, an, as the American theater. And I think that really is, we are at a crucial moment, a critical moment, a moment of extraordinary possibility. This moment is so pregnant with possibility and I do believe it's the moment to relinquish space, to hear new ideas and new people and new voices, and let that marinate with ideas that have been here that still work and that still hold up, and let it all come into this you know, great tapestry of thought. Um, but it's not about taking the old tapestry, cutting it up and sewing it together in a new way. It has to, there has to be an unraveling. There has to be new threads added. There has to be a different shape. There has to be a different composition um, within this tapestry. Um, and if we can do that, um, I think our audiences, they'll, they'll do what, you know, They'll do what I remember from being a child. Um, it's less about our audiences being critical of what is on stage, but perhaps it is more about who they have to be in the process that we create for them. They who have to they, be. Who do they have to be in the process? Who do they have to be in terms of? You know, where do they get to know about things happening in the theater? Where do they get to read about it? Where, what, what personal sacrifices do they have to make to see great theater? And I'm talking about ticket prices, and I'm talking about geography. How far outside of their communities do they have to go to see great theater? And then 
pick up children from school and take care of an ailing parent and then still go see great theater and travel on a train 45 minutes when affluent communities don't have to do that, right? So I think we have to reimagine where great theater gets to happen. And so I'm coming, I'm coming back again to the Billie Holiday Theater and its commitment to world-class theater for the community, but also a commitment to mothers who have children can bring families, or they can leave it with a sitter and they don't have to travel 45 minutes there and 45 minutes back. It's a 10-minute walk or a 10-minute train ride or whatever. And there's great theater in their own community. There's Wendell Pierce, and there's Marcia Stephanie Blake, and there's Lisa Arundel, and Billy Eugene Jones, and and then the you know incomparable Daniel Bernard Romaine, and right there, in their community, in front of their eyes. Amazing. Um, I can stop now, but I always like to ask, and you just gave the sermon on this next question of do you have advice that you would give early career you're about to give a keynote so it is there's obviously fall in love is the theme or it sounds like it might be but uh but yeah do you have advice that you like to share i know you teach and talk so i'll let i'll let it sit at that yeah my only advice is to be as fluid as water we're in a moment where um we're in a moment where that level of fluidity and being able to adjust to the world happening around us, I think is so important. Um, I would say remain as fluid as water. Don't get frozen. Um, don't become air and so esoteric that you can't be reached or touched by others. Be as fluid as water. Again, that was great. It was so nice to get to talk to Dr. Edwaru because um, it's funny to say doctor. And at the very end of the conversation, she mentioned Lisa Arundel, which is how I actually was first invited to the Billy Holiday, which I should have known because it was in my neighborhood, not in my neighborhood, my borough. But uh, and once I went, I've become a fan and supporter. But at the end, when she mentions Lisa's name uh, during that conversation and um if not if it was offline, she she was in 12 Angry Men and Women and Reparations, the first play I went to at Billie Holiday, and it turns out she's one of her best friends and somebody I've known and and a great friend for the last 30 years, and so she called, and the three of us were on the phone together, and it was really sweet. And after this very great, inspiring, high-level conversation about the theater and, and the direction and how to create change and what... You know, how we telling stories, I like her thing about telling stories that matter, the stories of our time and the stories that matter, and, you know, really paying attention to that as the work that we're creating. It was really good. And the other thing she talked about, I wish, you know, it's funny, she had a keynote, and I, I she talked about this on the pod, but that idea of being in love with the theater, and, and, and that means nimble, because if we're in love with somebody, we're in love with them, not who they were. 20 years ago, 10 years ago, but who they are today and how do we relate to them today? And I thought it was just a great way to think about it because as we resist change and we all, everybody who's listening to this podcast, I imagine, loves the theater and might even be 
in love with it, and I think I'm I'm in love with it, and and rec- recognizing that it's it's shifting, I'm shifting, and I was like I was really inspired to hear that because I thought right we have to relate to it differently because we have different personalities and needs as we evolve, and as relationships do, as individuals do, and as the art industry, but also form is shifting and I think uh, and and the audience and what the audience wants and needs I also liked when we talked about the audience being part of that experience and that they are you know not only a character but a collaborator and I agree with that as you are the audience of this pod a a very vital part and uh, I always like hearing back and hearing what was useful and what was a good conversation and also what you're doing so feel free to email me, Patrick, at thefarmtheater.org and tell me what's going on. I'd love to see it. I'd love to promote it. And, uh, you know, what was going on today at the festival, at the conference, Southeast Theater Conference, just really inspiring. Just it was interesting to walk around and go, you know, there's this Playwrights Forum talking about what playwrights need in development and getting into a great conversation with a collaborator about how to get the team, you know, them the work they're doing to get their designs teams at universities engaged equally with the cast on the project from the very beginning, and and then the Lifetime Achievement Award, just going through the history of the influence of the people they affect. You know, it they they weren't saying this is who I affected. Just in their story, they're a teacher and an artist and a playwright. Uh, director and just all of their students and people they worked with along the way you know you're like oh that person Samuel Jackson and that person was in this TV show and that person became this person you know and it was but through it they were just talking about the work and how things came about I think that's that is that's also my takeaway from the conference is it's it's about the work I mean that's always what it's about but it's about the work and and um and how we reach the audience, and how we have that intimate relationship, and how we really have a beautiful engagement with, as Indira was saying, you know, maybe it's a thousand people, two hundred people, you know, but that it's really personal and connected, and and I think that's the thing to strive for. And I'm, uh, I mean, I always, I feel like that's what we are striving for, but it's good to be reminded of it and and inspired by it because reaching, you know, it's great if it's successful and it reaches more and more and more and more people, but what's really important is the moment we're sharing. And Skyward talked about that too. Like, you know, we, we all came to this one moment to be in this room together and to value that and how special it is. And that's, uh, you know, I think that's my takeaway from this conference this year is how special it is that we get to share in this and that it's an experience that we have together. And I think more and more that's you know, that's one thing as I'm coming, and it's exhausting to say we're still coming out of the pandemic, but um, but how much we have value, value experiences that are shared. And I am glad to have shared this with you. So thank you again, Dr. Eduardo, for the conversation and for SCT for having me and all of you for listening. And with that, we're out. <laughs>